0: What is a marriage? Over these past several weeks, as I've studied through these precious words that speak so clearly and so sweetly of the blessed relationship of marriage, I must confess that the other relationship that the world has redefined as marriage has continually seeped into my thoughts. But as I prepared the series of messages about husbands and wives, I knew that I needed to resist the inclination to speak about that other relationship in the same context as the one true marriage relationship that God has defined for us here in these scriptures. For fear that even the mention of those thoughts would to some degree distract or corrupt our understanding about the one true relationship that God has put into place for us as husbands and wives. And for that reason, I resolved to wait and to address that matter separately. And I'll do that today. Those words again from Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. May I begin by saying that most all that I will have to say to us this morning, you've already heard. You've already heard and it's common to your understanding and you probably have already formed opinions and beliefs about it. And perhaps even strongly so. But I'll need to go ahead and say these things in detail anyway so that our thoughts can be relatively on the same page. First, may I make clear that the other relationship I made reference to a moment ago is the homosexual relationship that the world has defined as same-sex marriage. The union of two people of the same sex, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, in a homosexual-based relationship. As we know, the current impetus being put forward by our culture is that everyone within our society would accept and embrace those same-sex relationships and marriages as being the very same as our relationship and marriage between a man and a woman, male and female. And that impetus is strong, coming both from the political establishment and through the courts as the proponents seek to make laws and guidelines of a legal nature, of a legal obligation requiring all people to accept and abide by their terms. Although I myself have formed my own personal beliefs about this matter, and I do find myself at times voicing those beliefs very strongly, it is my sincere hope that both my own beliefs... And the words that I'll give to us this morning from this pulpit will be from the view that's presented within these scriptures. The true word of God and not in any way from some corrupt personal point of view of my own. And may I pause for a moment and address that point. As we know, each of us has our own personal opinion on just about every matter that we encounter each day. And sometimes those matters are charged with emotion, just as this one so often is. Unfortunately, our emotions too often cause corruption within us, cause us to overreact and overstate our feelings and our opinions. May I confess to you that as I evaluate the content of my own personal opinions on matters, any matter, I find that there's always some degree of corruption within it, making my opinion ungodly. And because of that, I do try, whenever possible, to withhold my opinion. And I recommend that to you. That when you hear words coming out of your mouth, such as, well, I'll tell you what I think about this matter. When you hear those words start to erupt out of your mouth, then you probably are going to express an opinion that has some degree of corruption within it. And you might want to guard or even completely withhold that opinion that you're about to offer. What is the basis of that corruption that so often seeps into our thoughts and to our opinions? And likewise, what is the corruption that's present within this new onslaught from the proponents of same-sex marriage? It's what our Bible scholars have defined as relative thinking. Relative thinking. That prideful expression of my claim to my right to myself. Also expressed with words like, if I think something is true, it is therefore true. And... What is true for me might not be true for you, and what is true for you might not be true for me. Corrupt thoughts. All such thought processes as these are relative to each individual, making it impossible to actually determine real truth about a matter. But thanks be to God, he knew that we would do exactly as we are doing. And so he established for us a standard of truth that's not relative to us as individuals, but is the same truth for everyone. And it is my sincere hope that as we continue to pursue these truths today, God's Holy Spirit will guide our every thought to find His real truth about this very special matter of homosexual behavior. And because we're Christians, may we understand that there's only one source to which we can turn and find God's standard of truth. It is these scriptures. These scriptures. Yes, we who minister these scriptures to you each Sunday, we do expound upon the words that are given here in the Bible. But even then, I would encourage each of us to take the time to always go back and examine and re-examine the exact words of scripture. Else we are in danger of allowing some personal opinion to seep into our understanding And gain control over it. And even worse, that we would pass that corrupt understanding on to someone else. So then, may we first simply turn back to our scripture passage for today. And let's examine these words again. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now the central point that seems to be in debate within our society today is expressed here in these first few words. What is meant when the words husband and wife are spoken? What is a husband? What is a wife? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to read along with me. I'm reading this from the New King James Version. What God tells us about the first relationship and marriage. Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read on further about how God created and formed the precious wife for this man. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And this is from the King James Version. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. In verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. and we're not ashamed. If we simply take these scriptures as they are given to us, without adding comment or explanation, we see simply that God created a man and a woman, male and a female, and that she was uniquely fitted to meet the needs of the man. Those words, Genesis 2 verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. Those words, help meet have in it a fitted kind of creation. Especially fitted. Beautiful words. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created man. Male and female he created them. The Hebrew words given here for the male and the female are distinctly different from each other. The word here for the male is zakar. And the word for female is nekeba. The male being distinctly masculine and the female being distinctly feminine. The discrimination between the two That distinction is especially important because of the next thing that God said to the male and the female. He said in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Again, Now I realize that I'm saying things that you already know, but I must keep these thoughts as simple and as scriptural as I can possibly make them to be because I do not want our opinions to seep in. Here God created the male and the female and he gave them a command that they were uniquely able to accomplish together. Be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. As we well know, such procreation absolutely requires the presence of a male and a female. There is no other possible way for mankind to be fruitful and to multiply. Folks, God cannot get any simpler in his explanation and instructions. This first man and woman This first marriage that God put into place was uniquely between a male and a female. I've given us these words from the scripture without elaboration and without embellishment. Intentionally so. This first relationship that was clearly from the plans and the purposes of God was between a male and a female, a man and a woman. And that prompts the question, If God first ordained and put into place the relationship between a man and a woman as the perfect remedy for the problem of the man being alone, does it make it wrong for man to devise an alternative solution to what God has put into place? That alternative solution being that of substituting a same-sex relationship. May we again go to the scriptures for our answers. And there we're going to find God being very emphatic. First from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Now some might argue that these words do not actually mean homosexual, as we might understand the word to be today. The Greek word here is arsenikoites. And there's no mistaking the meaning of this word. It describes a sodomite sodomite. And in Romans chapter 1, and I'd like for you to turn there also. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and created and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. Now note here, and I'll read it again for us, that God clearly gives us the motivation taking place within the hearts of men and women, causing them to behave in these ways. It is lust. Lust. It is not a genetic condition that they were born with. It is lust. And God clearly describes that behavior as impurity, degrading passions, and indecent acts. I'll read this again for us. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. Again here we clearly see that it is the sin of lust that is the driving force behind what God describes as impurity and degrading passions and indecent acts. And yes lust is a sin. It's one of the three most consuming sins that's mentioned in 1 John 2. Of all the sins that men and women will ever encounter, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and pride of life. Lust truly is a consuming sin. And recall again the penalty for this behavior. Again, those words of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. One more example of what God thinks about these acts of impurity and degrading passions and indecent acts. It comes from Genesis chapters 18 and 19. In those two chapters, God devoted so much of a detailed account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to say to us what he thinks about homosexual behavior. Nowhere else in Scripture does God dig into and deal with a matter so strongly. Those people of those cities, they become so depraved and consumed with homosexual behavior, that God refused to withhold his hand of wrath. And he rained down fire and brimstone upon those cities, destroying all the people in them except for the one family of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Folks, God does not look with acceptance and with tolerance upon man's alternative substitution of homosexual behavior for his ordained love relationship between a man and a woman. In response to those who would claim that they can be a Christian and still embrace homosexual behavior, we have to ask the simple question, how is it possible for a man to obey these words of Ephesians 5, and they are a command, how is it possible for a man to obey these words of Ephesians 5 regarding a husband and wife if everything that he is doing is steeped in the sin of lust. Those words again. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she would be holy and without blemish. How can a man who is caught up in what God calls degrading passions, do these things? How can he love, how can she love, the same-sex partner as Christ loves them? Such Christ-like love that's being commanded here requires that the Spirit of Christ be present within the man before he is able to love with agape love. And how can a man sanctify and cleanse his same-sex partner if he does not have the truth of Christ and the presence of Christ within him? And how can a man present his same-sex partner holy and without blemish, before the throne of God. We know from the words we just read that God says to us very clearly that that man will never have the opportunity to enter into his kingdom. So he cannot present his same-sex partner for sanctification and cleansing. Folks, as disciples of Christ, you and I must never follow after the ways and the demands of the world. Being tolerant and accepting and embracing the sinful homosexual agenda and behaviors as being normal and okay. And especially to accept it as part of the church. Homosexual behavior has absolutely no place within the body of Christ. On the authority of this word, it has absolutely no place within the body of Christ or within the kingdom of God. And as Christians, we are ever and always to be a testimony of God's truth and not confuse those who might observe us if we were to foolishly adopt a live and let live philosophy or... Don't look and don't tell philosophy. Or simply agreeing to a philosophy of letting consenting adults do whatever they want. May that never be. And especially within the church. Within the body of believers. Folks, this is a very difficult, narrow path that we as Christians are required to walk knowing that those dear people who are caught up in homosexual behavior are slowly dying an eternal death, we have to remember that we always have the great commission of Christ that stands as our guide. And though we see their depraved condition and are often repulsed by it, we still must obey Christ and love them and be willing to continually give the gospel to them so that they might turn and be saved. Finally, on the authority of these scriptures, may we conclude that homosexual behavior is neither a political matter, nor is it a physical genetic condition that some people are born into and cannot deny, on the authority of the words of this scripture, homosexual behavior is a condition of immorality brought on by lust within the soul of everyone who participates in it. And it is an intentional act of the will. It has no place within the kingdom of God. And it has a sure and certain recompense. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray.